Well, everyone, I'd like to draw your attention to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. That is our text this morning. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And I'll begin by reading our text and pray for the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we'll go from there. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Of course, in the Gospel of Mark here, we're continuing to follow Jesus as he moves toward Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Our God, we... Thank you for revealing these words about the Word, Jesus Christ. That in the pages of Scripture we can see glory. We can see your face shining in Him. And we pray that by your Spirit's work among us, that is exactly what would happen. Show us Jesus with clarity and with power. Stir up our hearts to adoration and a response of faith. A response of yielded obedience to you. Please give me clarity and faithfulness and power to proclaim these things and please give all of us alertness of mind give us energy as some may be tired some may be um, struggling with attention please give us alertness and give us softness of heart to receive what you have for us be glorified in our midst by the working of your word we pray in jesus name amen what are some ways that we show someone that they're welcome well there are certain things that we may say there are certain nonverbal cues that we may display to show someone that we're glad they are there. Maybe interpersonally in a group, there are certain ways that you might behave towards someone who walks up to join the group. Maybe when it comes to our house, we have things like welcome mats that invite a person in, even sometimes with a nice little message on it to leave no uncertainty. It says, welcome. Uh, even more subtly, we have other things we do, like we mow the lawn or we paint the exterior of the house to make it a more inviting place. What about when these things are absent? We may be in a group talking and someone comes up and we say, oh yeah, you're welcome to join us, but then you never look at them. Uh, you never respond to anything that they're saying. You never acknowledge them beyond that. might display... Uh, really undermining the fact that you said that they were welcome. Or maybe you let someone in your house 
But then you behave in a distracted manner when you're inside. Maybe you're staring at your phone the whole time or just busy playing a video game the whole time. Our text today raises the issue of how our hearts respond to the coming of Jesus. And we may claim to welcome Christ. But what does that look like? And to put it briefly, today's text exhorts us to welcome God's promised king to save and to rule. God is calling us to welcome his promised king to save and to rule. And we will examine this passage under the heading of five themes that demonstrate something about who Jesus is and how we're to respond to him. Five themes that demonstrate who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. The first theme is promise, and we find this in verses 1 to 6, promise. Our story picks up in the midst of a journey Jesus has already begun toward Jerusalem. This began toward the end of the previous section, Mark. We've really uh, crossed uh, or gone around a corner from really the middle major section of Mark that starts somewhere in chapter 8 and goes through the end of chapter 10. And now we're in the kind of final uh, uh, act of the drama of Mark. And Jesus, toward the end of that middle section, began a journey toward Jerusalem. And as the great festival of Passover draws near, Mark has portrayed Jesus with his 12 disciples and a surrounding crowd of fellow pilgrims moving toward the city of Zion. More recently, back in 1046, the beginning of the last passage we looked at, we saw Jesus leaving Jericho, which is about a day's journey from the capital. And as we see in verse 1, he approaches these two villages, Bethphage and Bethany. These are two outlying villages on the way into Jerusalem from where he was coming from. And as he reaches the outskirts of the city, Mark mentions the Mount of Olives. This is a key location in Old Testament prophecy about God's future plans with Israel. Now, strictly speaking, in the narrative, there's no reason to mention the Mount of Olives, but uh, this is, again, a key place. And so Mark is tipping off for us that Jesus' coming is beginning to fulfill some of those promises. Some of these references, if we're uh, immersed in the Old Testament scriptures, we would start to go, oh, the Mount of Olives, that's important. And we'll see the Mount of Olives becoming more prominent in the week to come as Jesus' time in Jerusalem continues. But as they approach, Jesus sends two of his disciples on a mission. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. He says to two of them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They are to untie a young donkey. That's what the word that's translated colt. It means a young animal of some kind. And you, you see from other texts that what it is is it's a young donkey. There to go and fetch it for Jesus. Now the script here, what I just read about Jesus telling them what to do, and then what follows in verses 4 to 6, which is them doing it, this script of what they are to do and what they do is intentionally constructed to show us how Jesus' entry into Jerusalem fulfills detailed Old Testament promises. Specifically, the language of untying the donkey colt reminds us of Jacob's promise way back in Genesis about the future of his son Judah. And it's interesting, Greg just preached on this just a few weeks ago as he was wrapping up the series through Genesis. 
Jacob blessed each of his sons and gave a kind of prophetic blessing. And this is part of what he said to Judah in Genesis 49, 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So we see a figure coming who will tie a donkey colt. The second major prophecy in the Old Testament he's fulfilling is Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So a young donkey. Now, there's no doubt that Zechariah is taking that earlier strand of Jacob's prophecy in in Genesis 49, and he's drawing it out further in detail as the Holy Spirit gives inspiration. And here we learn that the donkey colt riding son of Judah will also be a humble king who brings righteousness and salvation. And the point of all this is that Jesus is lining up a specific set of conditions to fulfill prophecy and signal that the day has come. The promises are being delivered. Now, what the disciples actually do in obeying Jesus, the action of going and getting the donkey presents some interesting questions. Is he telling them to steal? Well, no. I think we see clarity on that in this statement, the Lord has need of it. And also how he says he will send it back immediately. It was widely understood that a very important person like a king who's coming could requisition an animal to use it. It was his right to do that. It's not stealing. It's using something that it's his lordly right to do. I need to use an animal for my entry. And the key is what he says, the Lord has need of it. Essentially what he means is God has a purpose for this. It needs to fulfill a mission for God's use. So it's not stealing, it's using for an important holy purpose. Now another question that I honestly don't know how to answer is why are the bystanders okay with that, that answer? When when the disciples say the Lord has need of it, he'll return it. They say, okay, go on ahead and take the donkey. I don't know why. Perhaps, I've seen some kind of kooky proposals about why why that's the case. Perhaps the simplest explanation is Jesus is supernaturally turning hearts toward his purpose. And if that seems far-fetched, it's no more far-fetched than the fact that he has detailed knowledge of this village and where the donkey is and what's going to happen, the people questioning. He knows about all of it. Remember, this is Jesus who has earlier in Mark, in chapter 2, he has read people's thoughts. Back in chapter 4, he calmed the raging storm with a word. In chapter 5, he demonstrated authority over death itself. So maybe he's turning hearts toward his purpose here. We don't know. But... At any rate, his knowledge, his detailed knowledge of what they'll find in the village is a hint of his deity. He has full divine knowledge and full sovereign authority to bring about the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. So the first major theme for us is to see that Jesus came in all of his coming, but particularly in this scene, he came as a fulfillment of God's prior promises in Scripture. And as this this story of Mark accelerates into the crucial days of Jerusalem leading to the cross, the necessity of this point heightens that God has written the script, that God is bringing it about as promised, as originally intended. Now, some of us may be tempted to think of Jesus merely as a historical 
figure. Or maybe we interact with others who are more skeptical and believe that he was just a great Jewish teacher around whom somehow an epic mythology of deity and miracles and resurrection somehow congealed over time. Maybe you're a a child or a youth and you've been taught the things in the Bible your whole life and you've wondered, did people just make this stuff up about Jesus? Well, one thing that we have to deal with is fulfilled promises. There is apologetic power that is explanation and defense of our faith that there are fulfilled promises. Old Testament texts written hundreds of years before Jesus that were publicly read and publicly known and studied as scripture by the Jews in the synagogues. And then in Mark here and other gospel accounts, we see again the bold, open, public claims of Jesus fulfilling these promises. And Mark and the other evangelists wrote during the lifetime of many of the people who would have been around to see these events. And with all these eyewitnesses floating around, it would have been very difficult for Mark to falsify the details of how Jesus met Old Testament expectation. It would have been very hard to pull off a scam like that. These, were all, these things were all done and written very openly and very publicly. You see, God has built into the very fabric of his Old and New Testaments a powerful argument for the reliability of the gospel. Promises made openly and publicly. Promises fulfilled openly and publicly. So one initial takeaway for us is to take God at his word. Believe his promises. Bank on them. And one sign that we're taking God at his word is that we're stepping out in faith in his word when we can't always see the reason or the outcome. And we have to commend these two disciples. Consider the situation they're in. They were sent on an odd task that if I were one of them, I would have found troubling. Like, it's going to look like we're stealing this thing and all you say is, the Lord needs it, it'll be fine. I would be very uncomfortable to be sent on a task like that, but they did it. And it worked out because Jesus knew what he was doing. We take God at his word. Consider the past faithfulness of God to his promises and ask yourself, say this to your soul over and over, will he not fulfill the rest? Will he not fulfill every promise? It's like when you're following someone else's directions they've given you and you're in an unfamiliar place and you take a few turns and you drive a while and eventually you start wondering if you've lost your way. Did I take a wrong turn somewhere? You look and you drive and you drive and you look and then suddenly you spot one of the markers they told you about. And immediately, suddenly, that one glimpse puts to flight all fears that you're off track. You go, aha, I'm on track. Let these fulfilled promises do that for us. Give us orientation going, yes, we're on track. Yes, we can believe what God has said. And he will continue to fulfill his promises. Won't he complete the good work that he's begun in you, Christian? Won't he work all things for your good in ways you can't even imagine, even through the darkest trials? Won't he provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? Won't he use every affliction to prepare you for eternal joy? God keeps his promises. So, first we've seen in Jesus' approach to Jerusalem a fulfillment of God's promises. But then we might ask, what are those promises about? It's not merely somebody riding a donkey. There's a lot more going on. As we heard in Zechariah, it's about a king. It's about a kingdom. And this brings us to our second theme which is kingdom. And we especially see this in verse 10, this theme of a kingdom. 
with the crowd's cheer there in verse 10 when they say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They see in Jesus the kingdom of God coming in Jerusalem. Again, according to the prophecy of Zechariah, here comes the king coming with salvation and righteousness. Need I bother to prove the claim that all of us are interested in power? All of us have an interest in politics. Not all of us follow the ins and outs of the political process, the political uh, football. But consider the heated polarization of our day over political issues. Consider elsewhere in the world and even other times in our history when it's taken the darker turn of civil war or revolutions. We all have a great interest in the question of who will rule us and how. At some point or another, those questions come to bear on all of us. Who will rule us and how? We all have a great interest in that. And here's where the mention of a kingdom should cause us all to sit up and take note. Jesus is coming as a king. And as the crowd mentions, it's a king who specifically fulfills God's prior promises to King David. That he would raise up an eternal king in David's line. It's a promise that echoes many places in the Old Testament. But one clear place to hear it is Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the kingdom that the people are heralding. They're saying this the day has come, the king has come. The Lord has fulfilled his promises to David, which begin, of course, in Jerusalem, but ripple out to all of Israel and even to all the nations. Like Psalm 72 8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea. And from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Sorry, the river to the ends of the earth. It's Euphrates River, but all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, this is not the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we've been invited to see Jesus as a king. You may recall back in the beginning of his ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, we heard him proclaiming, and this is really a verse that sets the table for everything else in Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But ever since then, we've been seeing this interesting tension between the reality of Jesus' identity as the king, Jesus' true identity as the Messiah who fulfills the promises to David, and on the other hand, Jesus' attempts to keep that news publicly secret. Sometimes even telling demons and people don't say anything about this. The reason that we've seen for this secrecy is that people were primed to hear Messiah, Christ, son of David, and suddenly go into the mode of expecting political revolution. They expected a son of David to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman occupiers. And so while he's showing his kingship, he's doing it in a secret way to insiders like his disciples. While all along the way, he's struggling to disentangle from that earthly notions of power and glory that attach to their understanding of Jesus and his mission. Saying, yes, I'm the king. Yes, I'm the son of man. But, but, I'm also the suffering servant. The one who's here to give his life, as we heard in 1045, as a ransom for many. And so it's significant that at this moment as they approach the city, Jesus takes deliberate action to throw off the veil that he's put over his kingship. He got the donkey to fulfill the promises. He is out to show them what's up. This is a turn in Jesus' approach 
during his ministry. At the same time, the story is about to move toward its ironic climax on the cross. We would expect Jesus the King to be entering the city to seek a palace. As we see in a moment, he's going to head to the temple. We would expect him to enter Jerusalem and ascend a throne. But as we'll see, the only height he'll ascend in Jerusalem is the cross of shame and divine wrath. In fact, this irony of a lowly servant king is perfectly pictured in the image of him entering the city on a young donkey. This is hardly an intimidating and dominating way for a king to make his appearance. And that's exactly, that matter of meekness is exactly what Zechariah brought out in the prophecy we heard earlier. When it says he is humble and mounted on a donkey. That's the point. He's coming, yes, to rule. But rather than coming for earthly power and glory, he's coming to fulfill a servant's mission in giving himself in the place of others, of sinners, for our salvation. And all throughout the, the, I mentioned earlier, the major, uh, middle major portion of Mark from chapters 8 to 10, we've seen Jesus holding forth these humble aspects of, of his identity. I'm a servant. And rebuking his disciples for seeking opposite aims for themselves. That's been so much a theme if you've been with us in this journey. Where I'm a servant. I'm the Messiah who's a servant. So you're to be servants. Forget your desires for earthly glory. And so here, once again, Jesus shames our desire for earthly crowns. And he does it in two ways in this scene. The first is that Jesus' entry, this picture we see, leaves no doubt as to who is in the center. It's Jesus. Jesus is the focus. He's the object of adoration and praise. It's not the disciples. It's not you or me. Our great blessing, if we were to place ourselves in this scene, our great blessing is to be part of this fawning entourage. That's our place. The second way that this scene here rebukes our quest for glory is that he, the VIP, the center of this picture, is rolling in in an old beat-up Buick, so to speak. He's setting the ceiling on earthly glory, and it is a low ceiling. There's no room for outward human glory here. The glory is hidden and humble and quiet. May it be so for us, fellow brothers and sisters. May we never aspire to ascend above Christ in his displays of glory. We serve a humble Messiah. So we've seen promise and we've seen kingdom. What's the third theme? Well, it's really part and parcel with the concept of kingdom, and that is authority. The third theme here is authority. That brings us to verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany and the twelve. Now to have a kingdom is to have a king. And a king is an authority. So this verse 11 at the end of our text, it it also transitions into the next passage that Lord willing we'll see next week. Um, When Jesus enters the city, where does he go? What's the first thing he wants to do? He wants to go to the Lord's temple. Now, Jerusalem is the city of God. This temple is the beating heart of Zion. It's the place where the Lord's worship occurs. It's the sanctuary. And some have noted that verse 11 sounds like a big fizzle 
like a big anticlimax. There's this crowd cheering him, yeah, the king, yeah, yeah. And he comes in and he goes, he shows up, he goes to the temple and he looks around like a wide-eyed tourist yokel before going back to his hotel for the night. Some people have said, what's going on? This is so anticlimactic. But that analysis entirely misses the way that verse 11 sets up for what follows, where Jesus will famously, in the next text, we'll see Lord willing next week, he returns to the temple the next day and cleanses it. He runs out the men who are desecrating it with their profiteering. At this point, though, in light of where the story is going, we need to understand Jesus is not coming and gaping at the temple. This is great. No. We have Jesus entering the temple precincts as the Lord, surveying his domain. It's just like God promised in Malachi 3.1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. This moment when Jesus looks around and then leaves. This is a calm before the storm. It's like the moment when the parents have been away from home and they left their kids responsible for the house. And then they return and they open the front door and the place is a chaotic mess. There's mud all over the floors. There's clutter everywhere. Chunks of food all over the table. Someone spilled a drink and didn't clean up. First thing they do is what? They look around. You're quiet looking around. Hmm. Get ready. <laughs> There's... There's going to be a reckoning. That's exactly what moment we're seeing. Jesus entering, looking around, and withdrawing for the day, for now. He enters the temple as its Lord, surveying the state of God's worship, a matter over which he himself, by his actions coming the next day, will, will show he's claiming to have supreme authority over worship. That's the implication of cleansing the temple. What an astounding position to assume it's like we saw way back in 228 of mark when he called himself there was a sabbath controversy and he called himself the lord of the sabbath the master of this divine ordinance that comes from the mouth of god himself he is the lord not only of the sabbath but of the temple he's the master and overseer of god's worship because he's god himself he is the incarnate Son who is eternally begotten of the Father and who shares, along with the Father and the Spirit, the fullness of the divine nature and divine glory and divine worship. That is his interest in the temple. One of the things that authority should do is put everyone on notice. Accountability is here. Jesus' appearance at the temple, he surveys his domain in order to judge it reminds us that we are not free to worship God however we please. We're bound to worship God as he's told us, using the resources he has offered. And all true worship is directed through faith in Jesus Christ, reflecting a heart's embrace of his truth and using the means that he has ordained in his word. Jesus' appearance at the temple challenges us to consider what, what would he see in our worship what would he see in my worship and ours as a, a church body? Would he see flippancy in our approach to God? Not only as he looks at outward conduct, I trust that that's not happening here, but what does he see in our hearts? Does he see a casual attitude? I'm well aware of how easy it is to take the worship of the Lord lightly. We can show up and go through the motions, singing and praying and sitting in front of the sermon, but our hearts and our attention are light years away. Friends, we're about to see that Jesus' coming is very good news for us. 
But it's also accountability. It's kingly authority. And it, it calls us to tremble with healthy fear. So we've seen that Jesus comes in fulfillment of God's promises, that these are promises about a kingdom, and that as a king, he comes with authority. But to our eternal gratitude, that is not all the king comes with. Our fourth theme reminds us that he has come as a king with salvation. That's our fourth theme, salvation, in verses 9 and 10. So here we kind of back up and look at the whole cheer of the crowd, what they say. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Once again, they're quoting scripture. And Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26, which of course was part of our scripture reading earlier. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And this word, Hosanna, in Mark, is derived from the Hebrew for save us, we pray. There in Psalm 118, verse 25. Now, Psalm 118 was one of several psalms that the festival pilgrims would sing to each other as they enter Jerusalem on a a day like Passover, one of these special occasions, which is the season of, of this account. They would be singing to each other. They would be singing, essentially, may the Lord save us. And blessed are you to one another. Blessed are you coming on the Lord's behalf to his city and to his temple. But what's remarkable is how well this song converts into a singular salute to the Messiah. Blessed is the one, he who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes on the Lord's behalf. And it's clear that they mean it this way because of how in verse 10 they pronounce the same blessing on the Davidic kingdom. They don't just mean this as, yeah, you're, a, you're another one of us pilgrims coming for the Passover. They're, they're saying, blessed is he, capital H, capital E, who comes in the name of the Lord. He's bringing the kingdom. This word Hosanna, I mentioned it means please save. Um, but its use had become a little bit more general than just strictly kind of praying for salvation. And as a parallel, we might think of how we use the word hallelujah, sort of the generic exclamation of praise to God. It means praise the Lord. But, but um, Hosanna had kind of broadened out to, to sort of a, an exclamation of praise, but still one that focuses on his role as Savior. It's a beautifully poignant thing to say at the sight of Jesus entering the city of David. We praise you, Lord and Savior. Maybe that's the sense here. We praise you, Lord and Savior. Jesus has come as a king, not only in authority to assess and to execute judgment, but as a king who saves. Now, the crowd is absolutely right that Jesus comes as a savior, but it's not clear that they understand in what sense this is true. In speaking of the kingdom of David, as I said, they're probably operating on a political and more nationalistic register. But the New Testament witness of Christ's coming, the purpose becomes clear that salvation that we see in Christ is from far greater enemies, from sin, from the enemy power of Satan that holds us in sin, and from the judgment of death from God that we deserve for sin. Those are the enemies from which we need salvation. Perhaps you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid-shaped diagram that supposedly displays different tiers of human needs, 
Though things at the bottom are the most essential and then the others go up from there and become more discretionary. At the bottom are physiological needs like air and water. And the higher up you get to the more abstract needs which depend on the lower ones being met like safety, love, belonging, etc. Well, I want you to consider your own functional hierarchy of needs. What do you think you need? And in what order? Which things go on the bottom? If we were to take an inventory of how we spend our time, our mental energy, our passions, our money, what we are most excited to think about and talk about, things like that, we would probably get a good sense of what we feel we need. Well, Jesus coming as a Savior sets us straight about the hierarchy of needs. Whatever else goes up higher up on the pyramid, most foundationally at the very bottom, friends, we need salvation. And again, a specific kind of salvation from sin and all its ruinous effects. We need rescue from sin and Satan and death. We need, as Jesus said of himself a few verses ago in 1045, we need a ransom price to rescue us from the debt that we could never repay to God. We need to belong to his kingdom. Not as cowering subjects, but as welcomed and redeemed, forgiven citizens. And this is why it's the best of news that Jesus came as a Savior. His coming should strike fear into hard hearts like those profiteering in the temple. But oh, what a relief and joy is His coming for those who feel the weight of their sin. Those who feel the ruin of our fallen condition. What a rescue he brings for those who feel lost and hopeless under the enemy powers of death and the devil. He is the one who stilled the storm. He is the one who cast a legion of demons from the man on the seashore. He's the one who delivered the woman from years of a bleeding disorder with no apparent solution. He's the one who raised up a little girl from death itself. You and I need a savior. And Hosanna, for all of us who believe we have one. Our God saves through Jesus Christ. We have seen the themes of promise, kingdom, authority, and salvation. And finally, the fifth one focuses our attention on how we respond to Jesus, the promised King and Savior. And that is welcome. Our fifth theme is welcome, our response to the King and Savior. And we see Jesus being welcomed really all from verses 7 through 10. Once they bring the donkey, the disciples... The welcome begins. They, those disciples, then they bring the cult to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on it, and he sits on it. So it's like in lieu of a saddle. This is an inexperienced donkey that hasn't been ridden, so they put their garments on to give him a better ride. Then in verse 8, the crowd begins to spread garments and branches on the road to make a smooth path for Jesus, like a VIP. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And there's a precedence for doing this in the Old Testament making way for a welcome and honored dignitary by spreading garments on the road ahead of him. Now, especially in light of future events, it's important for us to identify who this crowd consists of. Uh, Some have assumed it's the residents of Jerusalem standing there at the gate welcoming you. Ah, Jesus, yes. Which creates a great shock (laughs) when only a few days later the mob is calling for Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem. It's far better actually to take this crowd as Jesus' fellow travelers, the Passover pilgrims on their way with him. Look at verse 9. Those who went before him and those who followed. This is a moving procession. 
that's celebrating Jesus. And this helps explain the whiplash we get from the joyous and welcome, uh, emphatic welcome the crowd gives him here to then, again, just days later, the skepticism and outright opposition he'll soon face in Jerusalem. Now, we're not told how many people are in this crowd, but just as a thought exercise, imagine that Jesus and his disciples are traveling with a crowd, maybe 50 or 100 people. A crowd that size could create quite a stir, cheering on the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. But the moment they hit the gate of the city, the whole procession dissolves into this place that's swollen with thousands of holiday pilgrims. In Acts chapter 2, we hear about the Sermon of Pentecost, which takes place during a festival in Jerusalem. And thousands of people convert to Christ on that day. Out of how many thousands are there in the city? So we can understand what a small impact their acclaim would have on the opinion of the larger crowd. But with that said, I want to focus our attention on what we see in verses 9 and 10, repeated twice, this word blessed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Now this word in the original Greek is a way of pronouncing blessing on someone or or something, uh, which is basically a way of wishing prosperity or benefit. One dictionary defines it as speech that pronounces positive circumstances for this thing. So they're saying, may it go well for this one who comes on behalf of the Lord. May it go well with the kingdom of David that he brings. They are giving their full-throated welcome to Jesus the King. They're saying, amen, Jesus, come in. May your kingdom come. And in this, the, the crowd models the appropriate response to Jesus' coming. The claims that he makes about himself and that Mark makes about him are breathtaking. That he is the God-man, the promised king for Israel and really for all the nations. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the temple and its worship. And there's no place for standing back in neutrality or indifference or reservation about Jesus' reign. No, we are being instructed to shout, blessed be the one who comes to rule us And who comes to pour out heaven's salvation on our lost and ruined souls. Just last week in wrapping up the series on Genesis, Greg reminded us of this prominent theme of blessing. God's covenant promises to pour out favor on the objects of his kindness. We saw, first of all, all mankind being blessed in Genesis. But that blessing becomes to be focused more specifically on Abraham and his seed, his descendants. And all of God's blessings come to us through Jesus. So that we say to the coming of Jesus, blessed are you the coming king in whom we find all of God's blessings to us. This means we welcome Jesus' authority even though it makes us tremble. We need a righteous king. And it means we welcome his salvation because we know we need rescue. We need rescue not on the basis of our excellence or our good works or our religious performance, but according to His power and grace to save. And the response came right from the beginning. Back, I said, chapter 1, verse 15, with the first mention of the kingdom. What's the response to the king? Repent and believe the gospel. Believe this good news of Jesus the Savior. That's how we come to be included in His kingdom. Blessed are those in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Says Psalm 84 verse 5. Friends, is your heart a highway to Zion for the coming King? Does your heart say, come Lord Jesus, come and save me. 
Come and rule me with your kind and righteous authority. Come and complete your salvation and bring your kingdom in full. It's not our garments or our branches that we set out before him, but rather in the words of Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Is this our response to Jesus? He's worthy of our deepest, most enthusiastic welcome from the depth of our souls. Blessed are you. Come, Lord Jesus. How hungry are you for the return of Christ? Again, as we mentioned, I mentioned in the prayer of confession, do things of this world trap your attention and the return of Christ loses its savor and its beauty? How ready are we, church, we who are the temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit, how ready are we for the Lord Jesus to return and survey his domain? Are we holy, individually and corporately devoted to his use and his good pleasure? Are we waiting on him and are we saying with our words and with our lives, come Lord Jesus? If you're like me, you can be so consumed with the interests of this world and this temporal life that our hearts can have little capacity left to welcome the coming of Jesus. We're just so distracted. We're not hoping in eternal things. We struggle to welcome him and his ongoing influence, his gracious rule in our lives through his word. We struggle to welcome his coming return and to ever live in view of it. Beloved, pour out your hearts and make the Lord a highway to Zion. This morning, God's word has exhorted us to welcome God's promised king to save and to rule. And we've looked at these five themes of promise, kingdom, authority, salvation, and welcome. And we've gained insight into who Jesus is and why he's come and how every one of us ought to respond to him. For those of us who already trust Jesus, may this picture of the triumphal entry stir up our souls anew to tremble at his authority, to treasure his salvation, and to welcome his presence with our entire lives. And if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then let his kingly authority make you tremble with fear. May it make you tremble with dread because God will not be mocked. And just as God sent Jesus the first time to fulfill his promises, so will he do again. You can shut your ears to God's claim of authority over you. You can shut your ears to his warning of judgment against you. But our God has already shown that he keeps his promises. So non-Christian, today is your opportunity to open your heart to Jesus the King in faith. Today is your opportunity to see your slavery to sin and its ruinous consequences. It's your opportunity to open the gate and to let the King of glory come in, to trust the Lord and to say, blessed is he who comes. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you for sending us a King and Savior in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would cause our hearts to ever more deeply welcome his presence, his rule, his refreshment in his salvation, the eternal hope we have in fellowship with you through him. We pray that any resistance that sin is posing in our lives, whether it's as believers struggling with the power of indwelling sin or maybe those who are still under sin's dominion, slaves to its power, We pray that you would clear away these 
obstructions. We pray that Jesus would be our treasure and that we as individuals and as a church would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.